Right, welcome everyone. Great to see you all here. I hope you're okay. Uh, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn and find your way to the book of Exodus, uh, and this week we're in Exodus chapter 4, uh, we were going to look at the whole of Exodus chapter 4 today, but then I read it again and thought, some of it we're going to leave to next week, because the second half of the chapter is one of the most, one of the more um, colorful parts of the Bible, which you'll discover. So you better come next week to find out, because it's going to be a lot of fun. So we're just going to read from verses 1 to 17. Today, hopefully, the word should appear as if by magic on the screen behind me in a moment or two. If they don't, don't worry. I can carry on regardless. Here we go. Right, let's read this. This is just the first 17 verses of Exodus chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. So Moses, at this point, he's picking up from chapter 3 last week. Moses is uh, at the burning bush. God has come to speak to him, or the angel of the Lord. Moses, already in chapter 3, has brought a number of objections, questions to God, and this is kind of the next on his list. He's saying, they won't listen to me. The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. Which, by the way, if you ever have a stick and it turns into a snake, that's exactly what you should do. Just run. Unless God tells you not to, then don't. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Now, second tip, if you ever come across a snake, don't try and pick it up by the tail. All right? If you ever watched any of those nature programs, who's the Dutch naturist the kids watch? Freak. Freak Fonk. Yeah? Is that him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would say, you pick it up by the head, not by the tail. But anyway, God says, pick it up by the tail. So he put it out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go. I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. 
Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth. You should be as God to him. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Right, let me pray. God, we thank you so much uh, for the Bible, your word, and uh, we want to study it together because we believe that it's not just a dusty book from the past, the historians and dead theologians, but it's a book where the word is living and active where it's sharper than a double-edged sword, where it penetrates into our lives, into our hearts, to bring truth, the only truth that really matters, into our lives, to shape us, to change us, to reveal more of you, Jesus, to us. And we pray that's exactly what would happen this morning. Amen. Okay, now you might have (laughs) some questions here. You might think, what on earth is going on? There's this stick that turns into a snake. There's this hand that he puts inside his cloak and it comes out and it's, he's suddenly got leprosy on his hand. There's this puddle that suddenly becomes blood. You think, what's going on? Because all Moses has done, he's asked for some proof. Moses' his task, which we found out from the last chapter, is God has said to Moses, I'm going to set my people free. The Israelites have been oppressed by the Egyptians for hundreds of years. God has said, I'm going to set them free. And Moses, I'm going to use you to do it. And Moses is saying, well, you know, I'm going to need a bit of proof. I'm going to need some evidence that I'm going to take on the greatest empire in the world with the Pharaoh, the greatest ruler in the world. I'm going to need a sign that I can do that. Now, if I was Moses, the sign I'd be thinking of would be like a tank, you know, or like an, a thousand horses all with, armed with lightning bolts, you know, something powerful. I'd be saying, I want some aircraft carriers and some warships, some big guns, some really big guns. You know that scene in The Matrix at the end where Keanu Reeves, you know, they can kind of download stuff into him and he walks into this cupboard and all these sudden rifles appear shooting past him and he just stacks up all, that's what I would want, all right? Every, every piece of artillery you could find. I think, I've got to go before the most powerful emperor in the world. I'm going to want some ammunition on my side. And yet what we see is this stick serpent thing, a, lepro- a leprous hand and some blood. So what's going on here? Let's try and make some sense of this together, shall we? See, these kind of signs and wonders, you see them happen from time to time in the Bible where God does these miraculous things. The Bible often describes them as signs and wonders or a sign and a wonder. And they they, they are a bit like a signpost. They're supposed to point to something. They're supposed to direct direct our heart, our eyes towards something. Um, And usually it's to direct us to the fact that God is more powerful than we are. (laughs) That God's in control, that he's in charge, that he is powerful. These miraculous things are supposed to demonstrate, convince something to us. And these particular ones, these particular signs, not only will Moses go and we'll we'll read in a few chapters time, Moses goes and these signs take place in front of the Israelites and they believe him. And then he goes to Pharaoh and there's 
the whole number of signs, the 10 plagues that take place. And again, uh, eventually Pharaoh relents and lets the people, lets his people go. They, they, they do their job. These signs prove something. Um, but not only do they show that God's powerful in general, but these signs in particular show that God is powerful, particularly over this Egyptian empire. This is at the time, this is the most powerful empire in the world. And God is deliberately using particular things to undermine them. So let's just explain that for you. So first of all, we see this in verses two to four, where Moses gets this, uh, this staff. It would have been like a, uh, he was a shepherd, so he might have used it to, to help guide the sheep, like a walking stick sort of thing. And he throws it on the ground and it becomes a snake. And then he picks it up, up, back up again and it becomes a staff again. Now, what's going on here? Well, you see, first of all, it's showing that God can do anything. He can take an inanimate object, a dead piece of wood, and he can make it alive. But it's also it's showing us that for, for the Egyptians, snakes were like a central part of their belief system. If you look into Egyptian mythology and Egyptian religion, that's, they believed in the power of snakes. Pharaohs would often have a snake on their kind of crown, They'd have a scepter that would often be made out of a snake. They believed in, in a guy called uh, Aphephus, who was a snake demon, basically. That was part of their belief system. And he represented chaos. This snake demon would bring chaos to their world. And he re represented power at the same time. They also believed in a god called Horus, who he defeated this snake demon. And what he did is... There's a, a famous Egyptian image of him picking up animals by their tail and holding them, the same way that God tells Moses to pick up this serpent by its tail. See, what God's doing, he's, he's, God's saying by turning this staff into a, into a snake and then turning it back into a, a staff again, God's saying that he's powerful over all these Egyptian gods and religions and myths so that Moses can go into that Kind of that kind of courtroom before Pharaoh and undermine everything he believes. All the things you put your trust in, all those ancient myths, all the magic that you believe in, God's saying, I'm above all of that. He's deliberately undermining that power that's kind of in their culture, the things they believe. On to the next one, we see here in verses six and seven, he puts his hand inside the cloak, he becomes like a leper. Leprosy would have been widespread in Egypt at the time. And it was, it was a fairly devastating disease that was incurable. They didn't have any way to cure it. And obviously, it's highly infectious. Uh, it was known by them as the living death. If you become a leper, then you're outcast from society. You're already dead. That's what they believed. So again, God's showing that to, the, to both the Israelites and to the Egyptians, he's showing, I'm a, I can cure any disease. I'm above any power. All the things that, that have made you an outcast, I can come and purify all of that. I can set you free from all of that. God's making a deliberate message, a deliberate point. If we move on to the last one, where God uh, uh, tells them he's gonna take some water from the Nile, uh, pour it onto the ground, it'll become like blood. This is actually the first of the plagues we find out in chapter seven, where uh, uh, Moses performs these plagues in front of the whole of the Egyptians. It's the whole of the Nile that's turned to blood. And again, God's making a deliberate point because 
On one hand, the, the Israelites would have believed they would have seen blood as symbolic of life itself. That blood symbolized life. You know, it's flowing through our veins, it's life. Yet for the Egyptians, they believed the Nile was life itself. They believed the river Nile was their source of life. They would worship the river. They had songs about it being the father of life and the mother of life. They had a, 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 another Egyptian god. They had lots of Egyptian gods. They had one that was, that was the god of the Nile who they worshipped. And he brought life to the country because that's what the river did. It brought life and goodness into the, into the kind of dry, barren place. So again, God's showing, he's symbolizing by the fact that he can turn the Nile from water to blood. He's saying, I'm in charge of all of life. All the things that sustain you, all the things that control you, God's saying, I'm above all of that. They're not just random, bizarre miracles that God's performing. Each one of them has a deliberate message that God wants to deliver to Pharaoh. A deliberate message he's using to undermine this entire way of belief, this entire belief system. And you know, in the same way, that's, we believe our, what we believe, what Jesus has done for us, all the powers of our age, everything that stands against Christianity, God is above all of those things. And he undermines all of those things. All of those things are baseless, powerless. Even the things that look most destructive and horrible and as Christians can terrify you, God's saying, I'm above all of those things. And he is. He is. But yet we find with Moses, doubt. He worries he doubts, he questions. In chapter three, we've already seen him bring a couple of questions to God. He says, who am I and who are you? And at the start of this chapter, he brings another question. He says, how will they ever believe me? And Moses, you get this picture of this guy kind of racked with, with worry and doubt and fear. How am I gonna get the message across? I'm just this shepherd. He said, I'm not even really a proper Israelite. He was born an Israelite, but then he was, he was raised in Pharaoh's family. And then after a, a, a attacking an Egyptian uh, slave master, Moses was then ran away, married elsewhere, was living as a shepherd elsewhere. He's lived his whole life away from the Israelites. He's saying, I can't go to the Israelites and tell them what to do. I can't go and tell them I'm gonna save them. Who am I? I just, I ran away from it all. And Moses' objections, his doubts, they kind of fit into three, three categories. Uh, first of all, rejection. Secondly, his ability or his lack of ability. And thirdly, just fear. So we're gonna just look at these today. So first of all, rejection. We say, see Moses say right at the start of the chapter, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. You see, what he's saying is, what he's making mention of is what it actually, it talks about in, in Acts chapter seven. It tells the story of, it says, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So this is in the New Testament. This is looking back on the story of Moses and it's talking about this story in chapter two where 
Moses takes it upon himself, as I mentioned a second ago, to kill this Egyptian slave master. He's, he's brutalizing this Israelite. He's oppressing him. And Moses strikes him down. But then the Israelites, rather than being grateful, they look at him and say, who made you our ruler? They, they reject him. They turn his back on him and he runs away. And that's what Acts 7 is talking about, these people that uh, rejected Moses. And the same way that it happened to Moses, it can, it can happen to us. You know, rejection can, can cripple you. It, can, it sometimes can blind you to what God is doing or blind you to the things that uh, you know you should be doing with your life. Rejection can suddenly put you in a, in a box and hide you away and close you off. And all of us have probably experienced, all of us, not probably, we have experienced it in all sorts of different ways. You'll have jobs where you've wanted to go for a promotion and someone else has been promoted above you even though you think, well, I'm more qualified than them. I, I work harder than they do and yet suddenly someone else seems to find approval. Or in relationships where you just, you, you know you found the one but yet they don't seem interested in you even at all. In family life, all, the, all of us suffer different moments of rejections in marriages with our parents, all sorts of different struggles and pains and heartaches, moments where we feel like everybody's just turned their back on us. One of the most kind of more hidden ways that we all struggle with rejection is, is you can see it really clearly on, on how people use social media. All the time we're looking for affirmation. We're looking for people to like and share our things. Because we don't want to feel that the people around us have turned their back on us. We don't go on social media and share things that we know people will reject us by. We want to, have the, we want to showcase that we're having the same adventures as everyone else. That we're achieving the same things as everyone else. That our kids are as beautiful as everyone else's kids. That we have the same political views as everyone else. We don't come in and shout all the negative things that are going on. We don't come on and say anything different from what everyone else is saying because we're scared of what people will think. We're scared that people will reject us, that people will turn their back on us. We're, we're motivated by this sense of shame. And what we do is we do this kind of what sociologists call, or psychologists even call, like virtue signaling. <laughs> Well, all the time we're putting messages out, signals out, showing our virtue, showing our value, trying to promote our worth, trying to say, look, look how good I am, look at what I've done. It's almost how our society, how our culture is, it's almost how people are trying to be religious. They're trying to show off all the things they've done to try and earn some sort of approval from somewhere, some sort of affirmation from somewhere. It's almost like a religious pursuit. And we can get caught in the same way of thinking. We don't want to be rejected by the people around us. We want to prove ourselves all the time. We want to show our worth, our, our value. In a way, we're kind of trying to earn something. We don't even know what it is. We're trying to earn maybe our salvation even. But the message we keep coming back to in this book, Exodus, is that you can't, but God can. <laughs> you, you won't find... You won't find your satisfaction, your salvation, your sense of identity and worth and value in yourself alone. You, you won't. You can't. Because you'll get over one rejection, one doubt, one worry, 
and then you'll turn around a corner and something else will hit you. You'll get over one problem issue, you'll achieve something, and then you'll suddenly remember all the other things that you haven't achieved, or the other mess. Only God can answer the, the issues, the questions in your lives, in your hearts. The next struggle that Moses faces is one of ability, or his lack of ability. He says to God in verse 10, he says, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue, or heavy of speech, he says. He's, the thing is, he says this because, as we mentioned earlier, he, he grew up in Pharaoh's court. He was raised as a, as a child there. So he knows that family, that organization, that royal family. He knows it inside out. He knows that these magicians that Pharaoh has in front of him, are, they're the, the intellectuals of the age. They're the elite people. And he knows against these people, he just doesn't have enough. That he can come and try and argue with them, he can come and prove things, but he knows these magicians will they'll perform their own wonders. They'll say their own things. And he's scared that he's going to fall short, that he won't reach the same standard. And for us, for our generation in particular, we all suffer from a kind of an anxiety, a worry of our own lack of ability. It's called uh, imposter syndrome. So 70% of people who would be in the kind of the age group millennials, which is what they call people who were born somewhere after kind of 1980 onwards. They say people in that age, 70% of them suffer from time to time from imposter syndrome, where you, it's, it's kind of what it says on the tin, you just feel like an imposter. You just feel like you, you shouldn't be there. You feel like everybody else around you has the gifting and the skills and the abilities and you're the odd one out. You don't hit the mark, that you're not up to scratch, that you're not good enough. Even some of the, the, the most famous musicians and actresses, some of the most famous uh, CEOs and executives, many people will testify to this same experience of suddenly finding themselves in positions of huge authority and power, but feeling completely incapable, completely out of their depth, racked by worry and, and anxiety and fear of, I just can't do this. I just don't have what it takes. I'm sure we've all had moments where we've felt like that. And I, I could just say to you, yeah, you can do it. <laughs> You've got it in you. And that might last you for a few days. It could give you a kind of an encouragement hit that would push you on for a week or so. But what we need to know is, again, that you can't, God can. <laughs> That's God's message to Moses. He goes on to say to him, look, you're just gonna, I'm going to give you the words you don't even have to find your own words. I'll give them to you. You'll suddenly find that the ability kind of wells up from within you. We get this story in Luke chapter 12. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, it's, so it's a similar scenario. Jesus is telling his disciples, there'll be moments where you're in front of the, the intellectual elite, the intelligent people of your age, the people in charge in authority. He says, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Often I feel anxious about how I'm gonna defend myself or what I should say. God says, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. 
He's saying just trust in God that the Holy Spirit will enable you, will, f- will give you the words to speak, will in that moment provide you with what you need. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's our helper. He comes to help us, not just with words, but in all parts of life where we face moments we think, oh, I don't know how we can get through this. That's when God comes in to help us, to lead us through, to guide us. Because for Moses, and it's true for us, it's that the message is more important than the person. What, what, what God wants Moses to do is more important than Moses himself. And God's saying, I'll use you if I want to use you. A, a, a friend of mine has got this amazing story. Her name is Julia. Uh, she lives in, in London. And uh, one day her, her, her neighbor is, uh, her neighbor's a lawyer. And she was going into central London, into the courts in central London to uh, defend her client in a big court case. She goes out her front door. She has her bag with all her important documents and papers, everything she needs to argue the case. She leaves her bag on the step uh, outside her front door, and then she remembers she's forgotten something. So she goes back inside to get what she's forgotten. She comes back out, and her bag is gone. (laughs) Everything she needs for the court case, all the documents... Without this bag, she can't do her job. Without this bag, she's going to let her client down, her company down. It could be she loses her job. Who knows what's going to happen? And her bag is gone. So she panics. I mean, what would you do? You panic. She looks up and down the street. She can't see anybody. So she goes and bangs on her neighbor's door, which is my friend Julia. Julia comes out and says, what's the problem? What's the matter? And she explains, I've lost my bag. It was on my doorstep. Now it's gone. And Julia says, well, there's not really anything we can do, is there? And then God, God said to her, there's a white van down the street go and knock on the door of that van, <laughs> which I'm not sure I'd be able to do that. But she just, she just hears God speak to her, and she goes, okay. And then she walks down the street, walks down the road, and lo and behold, there's a white van there. She knocks on the door of the van. Um, it opens. Inside, there's a rather grumpy, nasty-looking guy, the sort of person you do not want to mess with. <laughs> so she doesn't know what to say. She says, you know, God, help. And then she just says to him, give me my friend's bag. <laughs> she just directly says it to him. This kind of big thug sort of sheepishly reaches under his chair, pulls out this bag, and gives it back to her. And then she walks back to her friend, gives her back the bag. And her friend said, how did you do that? How did you know that the bag was there? She just said, well, God told me. That was it. You know, God can work even in moments like that. And it's, it's, not, about, it's not a story about how courageous she was, but she just, the Holy Spirit helped her in that moment. She's not one of those particularly bold, courageous women that would just sort of go around punching people in the face. She's not like that. She's just a normal person. But God spoke to her and she was obedient to what, to what God said. You know, often we, we can complain. I've done this where we complain to God that he's not given us what we want. Just I want these things. I want, even I want these abilities, these skills. Or I want this stuff in my life. I want this to happen. Why isn't it happening? We can moan and complain to God. And yet, the, the real problem is we're not actually doing what he's told us to do. That's what, that's what the issue is. We just need to follow God. And he'll give us what we need. He'll give us what we need for each scenario, for each moment. He'll provide us with what's really important. And then we come to Moses' kind of final objection. He says, this is Moses' his most kind of pitiful and pathetic. He says, oh my Lord, please send someone 
else. <laughs> and Moses had all these objections, and God has proved abundantly time and again, here's all these miracles, I'm going to use your mouth. You don't even have to think about it. Just open your mouth and the words come out. Moses given everything, and Moses just says, oh, I'm just too weak. I just can't do it. He's just, just this kind of fear, this sense of doubt has just crippled him. And he just can't get past that. He just can't get past the fear. And what happens is, is it says that, that, you might have noticed it when we, what, what we read earlier, it says that anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. That's one of those verses that you need to stop and read because that can scare you a little bit. And I thought God was gracious and yet God's just had enough. You stupid boy. He just gets cross at him. It's not what's happening. God isn't like that. It says in, in Exodus 34, this is, Moses wrote these words later on in his life. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's not, it's not that God lost his temper with Moses, but it is okay to be angry. It's definitely okay for God to be angry. When there are things that are clearly wrong, things that are just injustices, things that just go against the holiness of God, then God is angry. We can be angry. When think, we see things around us that are just unjust, we see things in our city that you think, that's just wrong, that should not happen. It's okay for us to get angry about it. We, know, we, we need to know what to do with that anger. We don't want it to, let it to turn into bitterness and hate. We want it to, to help us to actually go and do something about it, to go and then act out in love to help bring a cure to that situation, but to be angry about things is okay. And God's angry because he said to Moses, he's proved himself, and God's passionate about leading his people out. And he's passionate about not just, not just doing it himself, but using us, using his people, about using Moses. God is passionate about this. See, the wonderful thing is God is able. And he's with us. He, he was with Moses in all his suffering, in all his doubts and worries and fears. God is with us. We get this verse in verse 11. This is God's reply to Moses a little bit earlier. He says, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? It is, is it not I, the Lord? God's saying, as he's repeated again and again through the book, he's seen, he's heard, he knows. God sees. God's there. God's with us. He's able to act. He's not just a distant God who's just somewhere in the heaven getting angry at people. He's a God who's come down to us. The same way that God came down to Moses and spoke to him through this bush is a beautiful picture of how God's descended into our reality, is descending into our world to be with us. You know, for, for Jesus, you know, nobody knows more about rejection than Jesus did. He was the one who, on Palm Sunday, walked into Jerusalem and the crowds are going crazy. It's like a pop star has appeared. And then a week later, the same crowd of people have turned their back on him. 
and they're shouting, crucify him, kill him. We don't, who is this guy? Kill him, get rid of him. Imagine that, a whole crowd of people one week worshipping you and the next week despising you. Well, that's rejection. Jesus knows what, what rejection feels like. So if you've got a sense of rejection in your heart, you can come to Jesus and he's seen, he heard, he knows your pain much more than you can. <laughs> Even in, in the, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus dies, he says, God, take this cup from me if it's your will. He's aware of what he needs to go through, how he's got to go to Calvary, how he's got to die, how he's going to be tortured and humiliated, how he's going to go through his horrible, painful death. He knows, he knows more about fear than any of us, or at least the temptation to fear. And yet he doesn't give in. If you're, if you're struggling with fear, you can come and bring that to God, and he sees, he hears, he knows You see, the, the wonderful thing about us is it's, it's not only that he's able, that God even works in spite of us. God works even in spite of Moses. We get this passage in Isaiah 59. The start of Isaiah 59 is God looking around the world and seeing the destruction that's taken place. It says that God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede, to pray. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. God's saying, we can look around and see there's nobody that's able. There's nobody that can, can save these uh, Israelites from this oppression. There's no way that can save us from the depravity, the mess of our sin, of our lives. But God has stepped down. God has moved. God has come for us, for you. Even, even at our best, we're just like Moses, sort of timidly trying to grasp the tail of the snake to try and hold it up. You know, maybe we can do this, maybe I can. At our best, that's really what we come to. But in spite of us, God's able to move. And you, you, you might say, do you know what? I need a sign. <laughs> maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. You think what I'm talking about is all craziness. Who's this God? What are you talking about? You might think, well, if, if Moses could ask for a sign, if the Egyptians got these signs, if the Israelites had these signs, I want a sign. I want to know. Prove it. Often people have prayed that to God. People have said that all the time. If God really exists, surely he should show himself. Surely he should prove that he exists. Surely he should write it in the sky. Surely God should do something to show it. And the thing is that he has. He has. He has. There's an empty tomb now. There's nobody there. Because God rose from the dead. We believe in this resurrected king. If you want, if you want to know the sign that God's with you, the sign that God's able, the sign that God loves you, that he cares for you, that he cares for mankind, you look at the cross where Jesus died. 
That's his sign and wonder that shouts throughout all of history, that proclaims to the whole earth, he's risen, he's king, he's powerful, he's able, he loves you. It's the message that shouts through all creation. You see, and we have this savior, it talks about in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected, but yet he wasn't a reluctant prophet. He didn't give in to fear. He went all the way for us. And now that means all your rejections and doubts and worries and fears, all your pain and heartache, you can bring it all to God. You can just come and lay it before him today. You say, God, I don't want to be caught up anymore in this worries and fears. And the answer is not to sort of trust that somehow we can just do it if we just try a bit harder, but just to trust that we can't, but God can. And to, to say, I'm just going to follow you <laughs> wherever you take me. If you give me the words to speak over here, great. The things to do over here, wonderful. I just want to give my life to follow you, Jesus. And it's this weird paradox. We call ourselves Liberty Church, and yet we tell you every week to, to sacrificially give your life to follow Jesus. You might think, well, that's not liberty, freedom. To worship a God, there's no freedom there. You're just putting yourself under some sort of hierarchy. But the opposite is wonderfully true. In putting us, in, in completely laying our lives before God, saying, your will be done, your kingdom come, have your way, my life is yours. I'll worship you within my entire being. In doing that, that's how you find freedom. That's how you just find complete joy and satisfaction. It's not that the problems all just disappear. It's not that life suddenly becomes easy, but you know that God's in charge. You know that he has a plan. We know that we can follow him and we can trust him. Okay. Why don't you, if you're happy to do so, why don't you just stand to your feet and let me pray and then we'll share communion together. Let me just pray. Jesus, we, we thank you that you came to Moses, you gave him those miraculous signs to point towards the fact that you're greater, to point towards the fact that you're above any power that could control us, anything of our culture, or of our age that dictates what we should do, how we should think, things that we can feel like can control us, your power is above all of those things. And you died, Jesus, to set us free, to free us from rejection, hurt, doubt, fear, worry. You've put before us the way of freedom, and that's to follow you. And we want to follow you with all of our hearts. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for how amazingly gracious you are, God, that time and again Moses comes to you and says, I can't, I'm useless, someone else. And each time you make a way. Each time you just shower more grace on him, more love on him. Thank you, God. You, you do exactly the same to us. That we can come here one week and say we trust you and then by Monday morning we're not living our lives as though we trust you and that you shower your grace on us again and again and again. 
We can keep trusting you. We can keep following you. We can keep receiving your abundant grace on our lives. Thank you, Jesus. God, I just pray for anybody here that's just suffering from from an overwhelming feeling of just rejection or they just feel like a bit of an imposter. They just feel like an outsider. They just feel a bit lost. I, I pray that they would just know you with them right now. That they would know you just speaking quietly and gently to their hearts, calling them to trust in you, to lay their worries and their burdens and fears at your feet, to trust in you, Jesus. Be at work, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.